Um, uh, I'd like to welcome you all here tonight. Um, this is a meeting, which is a joint meeting. I'm Francis Seeley and I'm the chair of Global Net 21. And we're doing this meeting in collaboration with the Ethical Society, the Ethics Society, Fiona, sorry. And um, we are um, also have members here from the London Debate Network. Um, and because we've had three meetup groups advertising it, we discovered that they had put different times on. So there was some confusion about the times. Some had put 6.30 and some had put 7. So we thought we'd wait until 7 so that those who had 7 on could um, make sure they're here. So sorry about that. We'll have to get that clear in the future. I think the problem is that in Conway Hall, they tend to start their meetings at 7 and they automatically think it's 7 and we tend to start at 6.30. Anyhow, it's 7 and we've started. Um, the, this is one of the series of meetings we've planned to do and have done and started already with um, Conway Hall on politics and ethics and we've already done one on the ethics of climate change and we've got some, some coming up on ethics and education, ethics and economics and ethics and culture whether cultural change is more important than political change and the ethics around those questions. But this one which came out, we did a survey monkey poll of members to see which ones they were interested in. The one that came out on the top was this one, ethics and equality because people very often think that equality is a moral issue, that you know, equality is better for people, it creates a healthier, wealthier society, and a society which is not dysfunctional. Other people believe something very different. They believe, yes, people should have equal opportunity to be unequal because inequality breeds innovation and inventiveness and a more vibrant society. And that's part of the, the, the debate that I hope we're going to have tonight. And what we ha we're having uh, that debate is, I think, quite an important one in the situation we're in today with all the problems that we face. And uh, we've got to help us with that debate two people, Christopher Snowden. Christopher has already joined one of our debates when we did another one on equality. And Christopher is the head of lifestyle economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs. And he's authored several books. And one of those books is called The Spirit Level Delusion, where he actually takes on uh, the two people who wrote the famous book, uh, The Spirit Level, which did actually argue that equality was better for everyone, the rich as well as the poor. And he, I think, will take a view which will be quite interesting today. Engelbert Stockhammer is here as well. He's the Director of Research at Economics, Politics and History at uh, Kingston University, and he's a research associate at the Political Economy Research Institute in the, in the University of Massachusetts and Amherst, um, and he will take a very different view, almost, a, I, I would say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, a neo-Keynesian view about, um, about the importance of e equality in society. So what we're going to do is we're going to ask Christopher, uh, not Christopher, sorry, we're going to ask Engelbert to start and speak for 15 minutes, or at most 15 minutes, and then Christopher to respond to that for the same amount of time. Then we open it up to you for comments. We'll end at about 8.30 to 8.45, and at the end we'll ask them both to sum up for two minutes in reverse order. Um, we, <laughs> we won't take a vote because it's not a formal motion, um, uh, as it is sometimes. It, it's much more of, a, I hope, a dialogue and a, um, a way in which we can go into the 
topic in more depth without taking polarized positions because often there are more than two positions in any, in any discussion and hopefully we can actually address that level of complexity. Anyhow, Engelbert, thank you for coming here and sorry you had to wait because you, you thought it was 6.30, you thought it was 7 and we had that duplicated all the way down but at least you've uh, been here and uh, you've managed to relax and... Uh, do your speech. Yeah, have this. And let's be careful of the water. I've already exactly. wasted Let's once. spill that as far as we can. Well, thanks a lot for the invitation. I'm afraid I will have to start with an apology, because it seems the title of the event is The Ethics of Equality. Uh, and I'm afraid I don't have a whole lot to say on ethics. I'm an economist, I'm a macroeconomist, and, I'm and I've been working on uh, issues of income distribution, both the determinants of income distribution and the, the macroeconomic effects of income distribution. And I presume that's uh, what I was invited for. Uh, I've been one of the editors of a book called Wage-Led Growth. Uh, which we've done in collaboration with the ILO, the International Labour Office, which is uh, the, the, the part of the United Nations that is dealing with uh, the issues around labour. Uh, and there we've put forward the, the argument that actually a healthy wage growth uh, can be beneficial uh, to growth. And I've also been doing work on uh, what we call financialization and inequality, the, the sort of the interaction between rising inequality on the one hand and uh, debt growth and financial fragility on the other hand. So I, I will uh, sort of tell you a little bit of, of the work uh, that we've been doing there. And I'll broadly gonna split it into three parts. The first will be uh, about what we call the functional distribution of income. That's the distribution uh, between capital and labor, between wages and profits, and that's at the core around wage policy. Then, uh, more briefly, I'll be talking about personal income inequality, or personal income distribution. That's the distribution of income across households, or depending on the data source, individuals, independent on what uh, their income is, whether it uh, is capital income or uh, wage income. And I'll essentially be summarizing other people's research here because that's not been my own focus. And then I'll say a few words on the interaction of inequality and debt, uh, and in particular the notion of a debt-driven growth model that I would argue uh, that, in, uh, that the UK but also the US uh, is in and argue that that is a fairly unstable growth model uh, and that uh, it is intrinsically linked to rising inequality. Uh, so first on, on wages uh, and uh, functional income inequality. Now economists uh, have a long tradition of being quite skeptical about wage increases. The, the overall perception is that wage increases is a rather dangerous thing and likely to, to lead to unemployment. Uh, in economics, it's a fairly standard assumption that we have what we call a downward sloping uh, labor demand curve. In other words, if you increase the real wage, you'll, you're going to decrease employment. That notion has 
been questions in the last 20 years or so within economics uh, from two sides. On the one hand, there, there is a microeconomic side, uh, in particular around uh, minimum wages. There was a quite famous study in the early 1990s for the US on minimum wages by Card and Kruger uh, that uh, made a microeconomic argument uh, that higher minimum wages actually uh, if the minimum wage increases are modest, can actually have a positive uh, effect on employment rather than a negative effect. And I should say, if you look at next to any economics textbook, you'll find uh, increasing minimum wages as the first example of the bad things that uh, you can do that will increase unemployment. Uh, now, at the core of Cardin Kruger's argument, is one of market power on both sides. Now, the reference system uh, for most economics model is what we call perfect competition. And if you have perfect competition, then wages will be equal to what we call the marginal product of labor. And in that situation, if you increase minimum wages, then indeed that means that you're going up your, your labor demand curve uh, and you, you're going to decrease employment. Uh, the models that Cardin Kruger, and there's a whole medium libraries of literature following that up, uh, is that they're saying, well, but in fact, we're not living in a world of perfect competition. We actually have firms with market power. We also often, less so in the US than in Europe, uh, have the other side of labor markets, labor unions that also have some uh, degree of, of market power. And essentially, if you have such a situation with a firm with market power, uh, then what an increase in the minimum wage does is it doesn't drive you up uh, the, uh, the marginal productivity of labor curve, but rather it sort of compensates for the market power that firms have. And therefore, actually brings you closer to, to the equilibrium wage. And what made the study of Cardinal Kruger famous was that it, it, it did an extensive study for uh, uh, low-wage sectors, in particular uh, retail uh, and restaurants uh, uh, and other uh, uh, low-wage uh, sectors uh, and looked at, uh, uh, at state-level minimum wages. In the US, a lot of states have different minimum wages and found that uh, uh, minimum wages uh, do not in general, increases in minimum wages do not in general come with, uh, with an increase in unemployment. Uh, the, the, my own work in that area is more along Keynesian lines, uh, which is concerned about demand formation. And there, sort of the, 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 the model that we're using is sort of asking, well, if you increase wages relative to profits, technically if you increase the wage share, what effect will that have on the different components of aggregate demand? So there's consumption, investment, net exports. And what are the, the effects on these? Now, if you increase the wage share, you would expect a positive effect on consumption. In general, workers are poorer than the, uh, the recipients of profit incomes. Uh, thus, they will have a higher, what we call, marginal propensity to consume. They will spend more of their current income, a higher share. But on the other hand, uh, if you decrease profits, firms have less money to invest, and thus potentially that can have a negative effect on investment. If you increase the wage share, that also other things equal decreases the competitiveness of firms, and thus is likely to have a negative effect on, 
uh, on net exports, on, on, on the competitiveness of firms. And thus, we and other people have done uh, research trying to identify the relative size of the effects. And what we find there typically is that the consumption effect is substantially larger than the investment effect. So the domestic effect tends to be expansionary, increasing uh, uh, aggregate demand uh, if we increase wages. Um, and the, uh, the, the export effect uh, uh, is quite substantial, but it varies a lot depending on the degree of openness of an economy. Uh, I mean, if you look at the US, uh, the, the, the U.S. is exporting less than 15% of its uh, uh, gross domestic product. If you look at Austria, I happen to be from Austria, our export and import shares are well above 50% of GDP. So if, we, if, if Austria increases wages relative to, say, German wages, that has uh, a quite substantial effect on our exports. Now, there, there's a, a certain danger of a fallacy of composition here, in that is, uh, well, the world economy overall, of course, is a closed economy. Countries trade among each other. Thus, the larger the, the, the geographical aggregate is that you're looking at, the smaller that, that net export effect is. And so what we are finding is that for the world economy overall, but also for an area like the European Union, we do find that aggregate demand uh, is wage-led, and thus an increase uh, in wages is likely to increase demand rather than uh, uh, hurt it. Now, there's a separate debate on personal income distribution. That's the distribution of income uh, between households. Uh, and that was a, a topic in economics that hasn't been very prominent for a long time. And it's in particular the work um, uh, by Piketty, uh, capital in the uh, 21st century, uh, that has brought uh, the issue of personal income distribution back to, to public attention. And what Piketty and with various authors have done is they've essentially looked at uh, the tax declaration of people and then calculated uh, personal income distribution uh, and in particular looked at uh, the share of the top 1%, uh, so to speak, the super rich uh, in the income distribution. And what they found is that in particular in the Anglo-Saxon countries, uh, since uh, the mid-late 70s, what we observe is a very steep increase uh, in the income share of the super rich. Uh, so for the US uh, and the situation for the UK is similar, is that we essentially have a doubling of the income share of the super rich. So while in the late 70s uh, they typically had around 10% uh, of total income, uh, by 2007-2008, uh, right before the crisis, uh, they essentially have twice that income share. So in other words, there has been a massive redistribution uh, of income across uh, uh, personal income distribution. Uh, if you look, the, the dead literature is relatively young, uh, and so recently there's also been research both on the determinants uh, of that increase in income inequality, but also its effect. Uh, and curiously enough, uh, there's been uh, quite extensive study by the IMF and the OECD uh, mainstream uh, economic policy think tanks that have both concluded uh, that an increase in personal income inequality actually has negative effects 
uh, on uh, economic growth. And what they've done is essentially they look at uh, where different countries are in terms of income distribution uh, in a given year and then look at what's happening uh, over the next decade or two and uh, find that uh, higher income inequality tends to come uh, with lower growth. Finally, I want to briefly talk about the interactions between income, rising income inequality uh, and rising uh, household debt in particular. What we have observed since the uh, since roughly the early 1980s is that in many countries uh, we have a growth model where consumption growth uh, is the, the major component driving economic growth, which from the perspective of growth theory is a bit odd because in terms of growth theory we tend to think of investment and the growth of capital stock as, as the key variable in, in driving growth. Uh, but that's not the pattern that we observe since 1980. In particular, in the Anglo-Saxon countries, what we have is that consumption growth is actually the most dynamic component uh, of, of demand. And at the same time, we observe a sharp increase in household debt. Uh, in, the, in the background of that, uh, in many countries, we, we have uh, a massive increase in real estate prices, and that certainly will sort of sound familiar to a lot of you because uh, that's the experience of the UK that we have a very uh, steep increase in property prices coming with, with a massive increase in household debt. Uh, now, the interaction between income inequality uh, and that is an interesting one, and most of the research that we have here is for the US. Uh, I would think it also applies for the UK, but then again, there, there's not a whole lot of research on that for the, uh, uh, for the UK. For the US, we do know that uh, in that period, uh, meaning the last 20, 30 years, uh, it is the poor households that have taken on most debt relative to the income. So if you look at the debt to income ratios, it's sort of uh, in the lower income uh, quintiles that you, to, that you have the, the steeper increase. And that's sort of what we know as, as subprime lending in the US. The US uh, in the run-up uh, to, uh, in, in, in the late, uh, phase of the boom uh, had uh, a, a, a system where people got uh, access to loans relatively independent of the income level and relatively independent uh, of, uh, of the credit history, the so-called ninja loans. That's bad. One minute. Um, uh, and thus, in a way, what we've, what we've seen there is a model where uh, the, the, the super rich, who are saving a lot more of their income, uh, are one way or another uh, funneling their, their income to the very poor, and they, to a significant extent, uh, finance their, their consumption expenditure out of credit. And the ingenious financial means by which that was possible was subprime derivatives, complicated derivatives that allegedly, via pooling lots of different types of mortgages, would, get, would reduce the risk, uh, and thus uh, the super rich were buying it. Now, the, I'm saying the super rich were buying it because hedge funds, which are savings vehicle for the super rich, were one of the prime uh, uh, source of demand uh, for uh, subprime securities, at least uh, in, in the early phase. Therefore, overall what I'm concluding, contrary to what you read in a lot of economics textbooks, there's actually not a big trade-off between 
uh, inequality or uh, a more equal distribution of income and economic growth, both on the demand side and both on the side of minimum wages, but also uh, in conjunction with, with credit growth. Uh, I actually do think that uh, more equal distribution of income is perfectly consistent with high growth, and indeed I would argue with a more uh, with a less fragile growth model because the debt-driven growth model that we've experienced over the past decades is one that is extremely sensitive uh, to financial crisis and thus not a very healthy growth model. So you're saying that equality is conducive to growth. You're saying that when you have inequality as it has developed, particularly in this decade, the burden has rested more and more on the poor to some extent and the structure of the, eco the economy in terms of housing and so on, and real estate has added to that particular problem, yeah? Okay, so... When did you stop beating your wife? Okay, so you're going to come on now and say, when did you stop beating your wife? Because I think I heard you say that in the last debate, so you can take it out from there. I think... Uh, if you, yes, stand there. Hello, it's nice to be here. Um, my, uh, my position on this is, I just don't care about it really, it's funny to have to come along and time and time again talk about something you don't really care about, particularly today, I don't know if you've heard that Prince has just died, Sandra, it's my life. Um, so it seems particularly meaningless to me, nevertheless, inequality I think um, is, I, th I think it's something that people think matters because they use it in the context of things that actually do matter. Um, and so you will often hear people talking about issues that are really about social mobility or about education or about health or about housing or about poverty especially and, um, and, talk, and bring inequality into it, just to insert the words sometimes um, as if that's what it's all about. And uh, often I think what, when people are <coughs> expressing concern about inequality, they're actually expressing concern about poverty. And there are su surveys that actually show this. When you drill down, you may ask people what it is they're concerned about. It's actually people on low incomes. It's not people on the high incomes that they're concerned about. Um, and so you see things like I saw a tweet from um, Oxfam or maybe the High Pay Commission, one of these, one of these organisations, uh, a couple of weeks ago when the whole tax haven thing was um, in the news saying that uh, clamping down on tax havens is the key to tackling inequality. Well, it may well reduce inequality, I don't know. It seems to me that tackling tax havens either is a good or a bad thing in its own right, and the effect it has on inequality is neither here nor there. Tax havens, there's all sorts of arguments against tax havens. I don't see why you need to bring in the issue of inequality. Michael Marmot... Um, <coughs> He's, I think, an epidemiologist, certainly been writing about this for many, many years, with his famous Whitehall study. He was in the press towards the end of last year. A headline in The Guardian was that um, 550 lives are being lost every year. In fact, the, sorry, the exact headline, social inequality costing 550 lives every day. Um, when he looked into this, this was actually... He looked at the gap between rich and poor in life expectancy, which is, of course is, is considerable, seven or eight years. And he estimated, and I, I quote him directly, if everybody had the same mortality as those with a university education, we could prevent 202,000 premature deaths. Now, I don't know what, is, what that's supposed to mean. In what sense is, is that inequality killing 550 people 
a day or killing 202,000 people a year. It just seems to me that if everybody, if by, by some cosmic force, everybody could have a university education, everybody could have a job that paid a university salary, then everybody would live longer. Well, that, that is self-evident. Clearly, if you have more money, you're, you're more likely to live longer. The idea that inequality per se is causing that, I find rather odd. The, the suggestion that if the, nobody went to university, then there, there, would be, you know, there would be no cost in life because there would be no, no gap. This, this obsession with the gap rather than uh, the concern about the material living standards of the poor, I, I, I think, is at best a distraction from the real issue. So I would say that inequality doesn't matter. I think it's just an economic indicator. Um, it's actually traditionally been a quite an obscure economic indicator. The main indicators we've looked for been things like inflation, unemployment, GDP, and so on. Um, and even now, although people talk about inequality all the time, I suspect most people are not familiar with the Gini coefficient, which is the main um, measure of it, and under which, by the way, um, there has been no rise in inequality in this country since 1990. I think it was 36. In 1990, it's currently 32, 33. It's lowest it's been since the late 1980s. Um, and there seems to be no correlation at all between concern about inequality and actual rates of inequality. Uh, the concern about inequality, I would pin down in this country to maybe the, the spirit level, maybe to Thomas Piketty's book a couple of years later, um, but mainly to the recession. And I think it's the recession that's got people concerned about things. But again, with the recession, what are you actually really concerned about? You're concerned about the people on the, on the, on the lowest incomes. Uh, you're not concerned about in, in inequality per se, because inequality actually falls during recessions. Always has done. Happened in the 70s, happened in the early 90s happened again, even more so actually, over the course of the last six or seven years. You had the biggest decline in inequality in this country that we've seen for decades uh, as a direct result, and only as a result, of the economy collapsing and average wages falling. If you have average wages falling, then relative to that, you have people who are primarily on benefits will look better off. They're not better off. I think you have to be an extreme relativist to think that they are. They are better off. And yet that is what the egalitarianism um, requires, that you only look at relative measures, you don't look at absolute measures. I think, having said that I'm, I'm not concerned about inequality per se, I, I should temper that by saying that it depends what the cause of inequality is. It is an indicator, it is a measure. Um, but what is it measuring? Well, what are the causes? You know, I, I'm not interested in the smoke, I'm interested in the fire. Now, if there's, if there's a serious fire, I want to know about it. Maybe the smoke can tell me about that. But that's all that inequality, inequality can do. Inequality itself can be caused by all sorts of things, some of which are negative, some of which are positive, some of which are just benign. Lotteries, for example, strike me as something that is a benign cause of inequality. Um, positive cause of inequality would be things like technology. Uh, immigration. You know, with immigration, you often have a lot of poor people coming into the country and a lot of very rich people coming into the country. There are various uh, free trade, you know, globalization. You may, maybe not don't like them, I do, and so I, I, I approve of them as causes of inequality. I don't care that they increase inequality or that they might decrease inequality. I care about the effect that they actually have on people's material living standards. So I would care about inequality if, if it was spiraling ever upward, I think that would be a concern. Um, you know, if it was looking like in the next 20 years it was gonna go to the point where one person had everything and everybody else had nothing, of course I'd be concerned with that. But I would be concerned primarily about the underlying causes of that. 
And that is not to say, again, what is actually happening. What we've seen is the decline in inequality over the course of basically the last generation. You know, 1990s, a very long time ago now, 26 years. I'd be concerned about uh, rising inequality if the economy was a fixed pie, if the rich could only get richer by making the poor poorer. That would concern me, but that is not the case at all. The rich at times have got richer, but the poor do not get poorer. The poor get richer and the, the, the rich get even richer at worst. I'd be concerned if, if wages were going down. Wages are not going down, incomes are not going down. If you look over the course of the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, 100, 200 years, um, you'll see that um, the, the wages and incomes of any group you, check, you choose to look at have been incre increasing, doubling in, since the late 1970s. On average, real wages adjusted for income, um, incomes um, doubling, even amongst the, the, the poorest 20%, Increasing by, I think, 77%. Uh, wage growth since 1986 gone up 62% in real terms. Um, there's no question that the poor are getting poorer. The only question is about whether the rich are getting richer. And as I say, I don't particularly care about the rich getting richer. Um, and I would be concerned about inequality if it was a direct result of some kind of injustice. I don't think inequality in itself is an injustice, but I think there are, you, could, you can well imagine and give examples of um, racial prejudice, uh, gender prejudice, of um, crony, cronyism within mm -hmm. government, about special favours to industry. And some of that does go on, I'm sure. But I think that people who, who claim to be concerned about this should be looking at those causes rather than worrying about the, um, the smoke, as I say. Um, so, yeah, certainly if there's democratic failure, if there's corruption, if there's cronyism resulting in inequality, that is a problem. And the fact that inequality is rising may be a symptom of that problem, maybe. And it may give you a clue that it's going on. But I would only be concerned about the causes. I wouldn't be concerned uh, about the noise. Got five minutes. Okay, thank you. Um, so, I'd like to finish by saying, or asking why there has actually been so much concern about this. If you, if you look at the, 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 the basic statistics, and it's only the basic statistics that ever got me interested in this subject. As I say, the, the, the concept itself is not of great interest to me. Um, you haven't seen a rise in inequality by any standard measure in this country compared to the 90th percentile to the 10th percentile, the 80th percentile to the 20th percentile, the Gini coefficient. The only one you have seen some rise, although it's since gone down, is if you compare the 1% to the, 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 the other 99%. I'll come to that in a moment. But why has there been such a buzz over the course of the last six or seven years? Which I think, I think it's fair to say. That's when, um, if you had to do a Google search on mentions in the media, I think you'd see a big spike from around 2009. I think a lot of it is, is as I said, down to the recession. I think that people actually do confuse poverty with inequality. Um, I also think that some people do really think that the economy is a fixed pie, and if they see people getting richer, they assume somebody else down the line is getting poorer, and economists find this idea laughable. And you, know, you need to look at the data to see this is simply not true. Um, and, and even if it were true, the idea that you could somehow make everybody significantly wealthier by taking everything from the rich is just an absolute delusion. I, I looked through the Sunday Times Rich List a couple of years ago, worked out how much the richest people in the country, and most of whom aren't even from Britain, you know, these are the richest people in the world, really, how much, the, how much they have, how much they're earning, how much they have, all their houses, all their cars, everything, works out how much you, well, you wouldn't even barely pay the deficit um, of, of the government for a year or two. You know, and then it would be back to borrowing again. 
You know, there are there are simply not enough rich people, and as much money as they have, they do not have enough. For if you just grabbed every single penny from them and slung them into prison or shot them, you would not have enough to make any difference, really, if you distributed it to the millions and millions of people uh, around the country or, or around the world. Um, I think possibly one of the reasons people are concerned is they, they you bring up American narratives, quite a bit of what Engelbert said is about America. Things are different in America. You have seen this steady decline, um, fairly gradual, fairly constant over several decades, and you know wages haven't been growing by anywhere near the, um, the, the rate of GDP as they have in, in this country and most other countries. So perhaps in America, perhaps it is a bit of smoke to tell us that there's a fire. I don't know. I'm, I'm only talking here about Britain. Um, and, but I think mainly, I think we just have to um, look at the, the reasons that people have for bringing up inequality. And I think there's a, a good case to be made that uh, one of the reasons people talk about inequality all the time, rather than talking about what I would like to talk about, which is unemployment, job creation, growth, real wages, um, is simply that you've got people on the left of politics who um, feel, rightly, that they have lost the argument on production. Um, and particularly if you bring in all the kind of the eco-left people and the, the environmentalists who don't even like growth in the, th in the first place, um, you then they, they have an incentive to talk about, well, the growth doesn't matter. The growth's not important. Um, let's just take the cake we've got and split it up as evenly as we, as we can. Let's not, you know, let's not think about um, growth extending into the future. Let's just split up what we have and become a more egalitarian society. And what they're doing there essentially is playing to their, their, their weaknesses, really. The weakness of their policies is that they will uh, reduce growth and people will not get... Um, as wealthy as quickly in this country or around the world, and so they talk about equality instead. And equality is actually pretty easy to achieve. You can just kick out all your rich, you can shoot your rich, you can send them off to the Falkland Islands, you, know, you will reduce inequality. Essentially, that's what we did in this country in the 1970s. But very few entertainers around. Elton John stuck about in the 1970s, <coughs> pretty much everybody else was out, you know, Rolling Stones were recording Exile on Main Street, they were tax dodging, right? It reduced inequality very successfully. You can get rid of your rich pretty easy. The difficult thing is to raise up the living standards of your poor and well, your, your median earners. So um, that is, there are a few, uh, a few suggestions about why I think some people think it's important. I hope you don't think it's important. I think you'd be concerning yourself unnecessarily, and I think there really are more important things to talk about. Okay, thanks. So your argument is a very different one. You think that the debate on inequality is really a sideshow away from what it should be, which is on dealing with wealth creation, unemployment, and so on, um, and that people uh, um, create reasons to justify that argument which are not really about the issues that you think are important. Well, sir. And which are, okay, fine. And you take a very different view that actually unemployment, sorry, that, 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 that inequalities can affect growth and that the poor do, um, to some extent, suffer the most when that happens. So there is a clear uh, distinction between you. And now let's see what, <coughs> excuse me, what, what you think. Let's open it up now to questions and comments as well and see what you think about the debate as it's progressed. You want to start, okay? No original I've been hearing people argue against egalitarianism. And they always say, uh, I'm, I'm indifferent to inequality as long as you feel right. And in fact, I actually think they believe, their motivation is actually, they actually believe in 
they don't start from uh, what I would take as the normal Russian viewpoint. Uh, ideally, I mean, we all know I didn't say this in all Russia, but ideally, equality should prevail. They start from a different starting point to, in fact, most people, actually believe in inequality. Uh, I'm starting to look and think, do you actually believe in inequality? Do you believe in equality? <laughs> do you believe in equality? Do you think everyone should have the same? In an ideal situation, I don't you think, think everyone should have the same, possible, really? But, uh, the that's the idea. But you, you, that's you, you arrange inequalities to maximise I mean, it's I think his argument is slightly different. Let, let's come back and get you to respond in a minute. But I think what you're saying is that the people who argue, as, as Chris yeah. has, is doing exactly what he said about the eco people. He's actually using camouflage to hide the fact that maybe he really believes in inequality. But we'll let you come back on that in a minute. Evan in the back. Yeah, I think it's, uh, Okay, well, let, let's. That's a big, that's a big um, uh, observation, I have to say. I mean, we need yeah. clarification. But you, you are talking to the man who's written The Spirit Level Delusion, so I'm sure you'll you see what the answer yes, will the be answer. in a minute. Yes, is the answer in short. But we'll come back to him in a minute. Let's get one more point, and then we'll take both those points. But I, I want to make sure <coughs> that both people have a chance to respond. One more point. Okay, two, two, two more points. Okay, first thing, it's all the ethics, and we haven't really talked about ethics One way of looking at that is how should empowerment be spent? If you've got a certain amount of human endeavour, where should you direct it? And the quick question is, is it ethically better directed towards, say, providing people with vaccinations, providing people with care, improving nutrition, or is it better being spent on a luxury yacht? And that seems to me that that is an ethical question, but it's one that we kind of take into account um, a bit. You know, I don't know if it's a charity or so on, but, but, but we, we tend to not think about it so much. <coughs> so um, I was very surprised to hear um, Mr. Snowden say that he would be worried if there were a democratic failure, because um, I did post some links on the meetup side actually, showing what people think. Uh, think should, is, is the ethical distribution of wealth. And it's sort of like uh, most well-paid or paid three times more, more than least, least the least well-paid or something like that. Um, so, you know, people are recognised for their, their, their contributions. Um, and, yet, and yet it's very different from <coughs> what they think the actual situation is, where, where I think it's, it's, it's a difference of 20 or 50 times. Um, and we're actually, uh, and the actual reality is more like 50 to 100 times. So, so, so there clearly is a democratic fact. Um, it just seems that, that yeah, public policy hasn't been doing what it's, what it's supposed, to, supposed to be doing. Um, so, are those your two points? Uh, I'll do for the moment. 
Okay, come back in there. I'm sure, I'm sure there'd be time to come back. Let, let's start with Engelbert, and then we'll come to you, because some, some of the questions have been directed to you, obviously, <coughs> because there's some disagreement. Uh, you're saying, and, and maybe you could respond to this, that uh, inequality is an ethical subject, in the sense that, you know, if, if, a, if a lot of people are buying yachts, that money could be spent better on providing public services. And I know you partly responded, you, you partly dealt with that in your speech, and I'm sure you will in a minute. And, um, you know, is there, uh, is there, does ethics any, got, have anything to say about what the distribution of wealth should be? Should the rich have three times more than the poor, 50 times more than the, the poor, a thousand times more than the poor? I'm still struggling a bit to make ethical statements. Uh, it, I belong to those people who want to live in a relatively egalitarian society. And I sort of struggle a bit to come to the point why exactly I think that is. I mean, I, I guess it's something about human empathy and not wanting to see poor people. Uh, because, I mean, you feel that those people are usually not doing very well. Um, I don't, I, I think I must make three comments on, on what Chris said. I don't quite see the, the a sharp uh, okay, contradistinction. You have a chance to have a go, Chris, but it'd be nice to answer the, the people in the room as well. Because I, I think the question this gentleman asked about, um, you know, the ethics of the whole situation, I think is an important one. I just thought it was directed more towards Chris than me. Go on, have a go and then come back. But, um, uh, I mean, the problem is a lot of the questions are directed more towards Chris because obviously you're in the far end line, it seems. Yeah, but, exactly. So you need but, something to talk about. But, but like, you, need, you need to respond as well in that sense. Yeah. So I, I don't quite see the sharp distinction between inequality <laughs> and poverty. Obviously, they are empirically two different measures. Um, and I certainly care about both, uh, so they're certainly not either or. Um, however, <coughs> the empirical evidence very clearly suggests that countries that are more equal, unequal also have higher degrees of poverty. And the evidence is also very clear that if you have high levels of inequality, you get a lot less intergenerational mobility which is not very surprising, because unless you have extremely stringent uh, inheritance laws, which essentially no country does, uh, the inequality gets passed on from generation to generation. And again, with the British property market, it would seem relatively straightforward. In, in London, you just don't get into the property ladder unless you have parents that, that help you get onto it. Uh, but again, I would think that the, 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 the academic uh, evidence on that is quite unambiguous and that the correlation is quite strong. Uh, the second point I have to make, uh, I mean, the, the measure of inequality is indeed uh, a tricky one. And it is, I mean, the, the debate on inequality and the concern about inequality is indeed to some extent shaped by the US experience. And the US experience is extreme in that you have the top 1% taking off, and you have what we call the median wages, meaning the, the, the wages exactly in the middle of the income distribution, essentially flat since the mid-1970s. In other words, the super-rich are massively growing their incomes, and the average working-class household has not seen real wage gains for 30-something years. 
The situation in the European countries is more complicated uh, and also varies by country. But uh, Chris himself said that, well, if you look at uh, the Gini coefficient, the standard measure of income distribution, since the early 90s, there isn't a spectacular change in Britain. Well, yes, in the decade before, there was a spectacular change. Uh, in the 80s, it increased massively. And the second qualification he made, was that he said, well, there's not much change in income distribution unless you look at the top 1%. And that is something that also happened in Britain. While median wages have a different profile from the US, you also have the top 1% of income distribution uh, taking off. And I would regard that as an ethical problem, but I'm more concerned about that politically, because that means that you're growing an elite of the society who lives under very different circumstances from the rest of society that obviously does not only depend on, on income distribution, <laughs> but also depends on your schooling system and what have you. Uh, but that is something that I'm worried about. Okay. Um, okay, so, and, and, you, and you, you made the point about inequality being embedded through generations, which is quite an interesting point as well. I mean, do you want to take up the two points, and I'm sure you respond to Engelberg as well. I mean, one was the idea is that very often that when you argue like you do, maybe you're hiding the fact that deep down your prejudice is that you like inequality, and the whole point about the spirit level uh, and, and whether you disagree with that, which I'm sure you do. Quickly, back, back to Engelberg. Um, yeah, there's bound to be a correlation between inequality and relative poverty, because that's what we're measuring, relative poverty. There isn't a correlation between inequality and poverty, absolute poverty. Relative poverty is basically a measure of inequality. It just looks at the, the, the comparison between people. Thank you. Relative poverty, which is what all Western countries use, is basically a measure of inequality. It's bound to be uh, correlated, which is why Poverty has fallen in this country over the last six or seven years, as inequality has, and this surprises people who don't understand how poverty is measured. But it's, it's, it's bound to happen. It's inevitable. It's, it, it, relative poverty, like inequality, does not actually reflect material living standards. Um, on the question of do I actually believe what I'm saying, yes, I don't turn up here just to you know, lie about things. If I say I don't believe in inequality matters, I genuinely don't care about inequality. Um, and. <coughs> And I, I really don't, I'm never, you know, I'm not in the top 1% or the top 10%, and I've never expected to be, and never have any real aspiration to be. And people who are, I think, fair play to them. You know, I know people will look at certain individuals, and uh, well, can we avoid using the word envy here? I mean, uh, it, seems, it seems to me there's always a big difference between, like, the guy who's a guy at BP who's getting paid a ridiculous amount of money, 14 million pounds. People hate him. People hate Fred um, the Shred. Goodwin, because they failed. BP are losing money. Fred the Shred wrecked the economy. You know, people hate him. They don't hate Lionel Messi and Wayne Rooney unless they're, unless they're consistently missing the net. Um, there is a, there, people understand that, or rather, people don't care about what you might see as obscene salaries or excessive salaries, so long as they're doing the business. So long as people are Yep. Sam, what, what about the spirit delusion? I mean, the, no, the spirit level. Yours, My answer yours is the delusion. Uh, you should have been here. You know, the spirit level argues that equality is better for everyone, the rich and the poor. Yeah, well, you know, I had an entire presentation here, didn't I, a few years ago about you that. You should have been there. Two seconds. No, I can't. It's just a load of nonsense. It's, you know, it's obvious statistical, <laughs> you know, transparently, I think, statistical fraud. Um, they just, just excluded a whole bunch of countries, excluded a whole bunch of criteria. 
picked and chose a, the dates. You know, it's, um, I think, obvious, really, um, what they've done there. There's no way any particular economic variable could correlate so perfectly with so many different criteria. Uh, it's, it's interesting from a statistical point of view. It's, it's not meaningful um, if you want to understand inequality. And on de de democratic failure, somebody brought up on the basis of opinion poll. Well, you know, um, when I talked about democratic failure, what I actually meant was if you have um, if you have enormous amount of cronyism within the government, so the government itself is handing out massive salaries to people all over the place or favouring certain companies and that kind of thing. And it goes on in this country, goes on around the world. Um, that's what I meant, not what some opinion poll says. I mean, you know, you, whether you like it or not, the Conservatives did win a majority against parties who were supposedly anti-austerity and pro, you know, Miliband made inequality a main, the main part, of, one of the main parts of his platform. The first Labour leaders do that for a long time. Corbyn, I'm sure, will do it again with the similar results. Okay, um, let's get some other people in. Uh, Martin, could you do me a favour and take this around so that people have the microphone and we'll use this one. Um, two people, over, the lady up here, because we've had all men so far. <laughs> Um, I have a question for either side. Can I do both of them? For what, sir? I have one for either side. Yeah, sure. Okay, so... I thought um, you said for me for a moment. No. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I'll start with your question. Um, theoretically, if... Because um, I'm not quite sure how the economics works, so I'll talk about well-being. If economic... well, No, sorry. So if, if well-being... Um, if you could choose to increase everyone's well-being or just increase the well-being of the poorer people then surely it'd increase everyone's well-being. But that would, like, equality would remain the same, but everyone's well-being would increase. Like, w would you choose to increase everyone's or only the, say, bottom 50%, which would decrease inequality? Um, okay, we'll keep the microphone and you just respond to that one quickly and then we'll do your next I question. Have, but I'll need a bit to think about it. Huh? Uh, okay, do your next um, question. Your question. Um, if the richest 10% of world gave 10% of their income every year, in the first year we'd be able to eradicate um, extreme poverty worldwide. Uh, you said that richest, like if the richest people's money went to the poorest people, we wouldn't be able to have a large effect, but I think that statistic um, like disproves that in a sense. And... Um, yeah, so it's not that, so I think that it's not that inequality causes that poverty, but if, but effective policies to reduce that poverty would cause, would cause decreased inequality. Does that make sense? Okay, do you want to respond to that? Because I mean, she's questioning your point that the, you know, the top 1%, if you redistribute it, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't be, it would be insignificant. I, I'm, I don't really believe the statistic. The statistic is what? The, if, ten, if, if, if the richest 10% of the people of the world... Oh, basically. Right. Gave like, 10 Europe. Of no, no, of the world. Well, yeah, that would be us. That would definitely be us. <laughs> right, yeah. Everyone in this room is probably in the top 1% worldwide. Right? Above um, 18 grand a year. If yeah. they gave 10% of their income, yeah. then from 18 grand a year, in the first year, we could eradicate global poverty. Well, you'd have to do it every year afterwards, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. So, rich people's money can save poor people's problems, which is what you said couldn't happen. And is that? And are you raising that as an ethical issue as well? well I'm saying that um, I'm, I agree that inequality doesn't necessarily mean that um, that we don't have that we have poverty, but that a 
decrease in inequality would happen after effective policies to decrease poverty. Okay, so, so massive redistribution could mm. eradicate global poverty. But it would also decrease inequality, yeah. It would decrease inequality. Yeah. Decrease inequality if we eradicated global poverty. Is that a good thing? Well, the, the, the decrease in inequality, as I probably made clear by now, doesn't really bother me. The idea of eradicating global poverty is more more appealing. Um, if we did it by taxing an extra ten percent of what everybody earns, obviously not. You know, people on that kind of salaries are there already. I'd have to uh, look at the figures. I mean, it's I'm, I find I struggle dealing with hypotheticals. Obviously, it wouldn't. It would never happen. But if you want to start taxing people who are on £18,000 in this country <coughs> to give it to somebody in India or Bangladesh or something, then, you know, I don't know. I don't think the Child Poverty Action Group in this country would be very happy about it because those people are supposedly already in poverty by, by our standards. Okay, so it's a question of absolute and relative poverty, which I, I appreciate the distinction. Um, and I do think absolute poverty is more important than relative poverty. But you know, there isn't a lot of appetite, it seems to me, amongst people who complain about uh, inequality to look at the rest of the world. Um, you know, why aren't they giving their money? If they think it's so important, why aren't they giving their money to people who are genuinely poor uh, around the rest of the, rest of the globe? Um, people are very nationalistic when it comes to inequality. You know, inequality globally has actually fallen over the last 20 years, thanks to China, primarily. Um, becoming richer. And yet in China, inequality has risen. Now, that seems to me to be a real poser for people who are concerned about inequality. Are we supposed to be worried that, global, uh, that Chinese inequality has fallen, or that, are we supposed to be happy because global inequality has, um, sorry, the Chinese inequality has risen, or are we supposed to be happy that global inequality has fallen? Seems to me we should just be happy that Chinese are getting richer. And the fact that whether it makes global inequality uh, you know, greater or smaller is neither here nor there. Okay, and you have time to think about Yes. Now, I don't like the question, but I'll still try to answer it. But I will briefly say why I don't like the question. Please now, ask questions, speakers. Don't <laughs> Please. Now, uh, the, <laughs> Would I increase the incomes of the entire population of the poor? It, the short answer is it depends on what country and what area we're talking about. Uh, if, there's, if we're talking about Sweden in the mid-70s, I'd probably go for the general increase. If you're talking about today's US or UK, I'll probably go for the poor. In the UK, it's a bit tricky because, I mean, uh, since uh, the, the recession, uh, sort of average uh, wages actually have been falling. So, I mean, there's also a case there, but uh, then I, I guess there, there's a stronger need at the very bottom. But let me tell you why I don't, I'm, I'm not convinced that it's, it's really the, the interesting question. I mean, ultimately, to me, it seems the question is how we can construct a growth model that's socially inclusive, where it's sort of not part of, of the population being dropping out and, and being excluded from the growth process. And in that sense, I, I don't quite like the question, because I mean, the issue is really how do we construct a growth model where the, the bottom doesn't take off and uh, the top doesn't take off and the bottom doesn't fall down. Okay, I think there are two people <laughs> back there. I wanted to ask um, Chris and um, is it Engelbert? Sorry. Uh, what effect do you think inequality has on social cohesion? 
and is that relevant in this in an ethical debate? On social position? Uh, on social cohesion. Oh, yeah. Okay. And this gentleman up here, let's I think sorry Martin, you got to do a lot of the uh, walking. Uh, yeah, um, Chris says he's not interested in inequality or equality. I'm not interested in economics. The whole thing is utterly corrupt on a global scale and corrupting. And uh, I, I just find some of the arguments pure. The idea that you know you take take all the rich people in this country and you know all the rich list and distribute it around. I mean, I've heard this stuff, God knows how many, and for decades. You know, it's puerile arguments. And I think it's also misrepresented Sir Michael Mormon's uh, arguments as well, because they're not, they're not purely economic arguments. They're about things like empowerment and things like that. There's, there's, uh, Marmot is very interested in empowerment. And um, Keynes famously, Keynes was mentioned earlier on, Keynes famously said in 1930, thereabouts, that by the end of the 20th century, we'd all be working 15 hours a week or something like that. And of course that hasn't happened. Uh, in fact, people are working probably harder than ever. I don't understand this utter obsession with people working. This awful Protestant work ethic is, is killing people. It's horrible, you know. And, and, and it wouldn't matter so much if most of the work people did was actually important, useful work. Most of it isn't. It's actually it's, it's ridiculous, the stuff we have to do. <coughs> of course, it makes money for capital, and that's why it's there. But as far as the people who do it are concerned, people who work in call centres, stacking shelves, I mean, God knows what, working in uh, McDonald's, all the rest of it, um, it it's, it's awful dis dispiriting work, and, uh, and, and it's there because it makes money for the rich. So what's your point in terms of the debate? <laughs> My point in terms of the debate is that um, I've always been an egalitarian my whole life and, and uh, the, the arguments which I said I've heard for, for, for the whole of my life and said, oh, well, you know, it, it's, it's, just, it's just this smooth talk about, well, it doesn't matter if people are very rich and there's all this inequality, it really doesn't matter. Um, you know, and I, and I, don't, I don't see this obsession with growth either. Okay, so you're an egalitarian, and we take that as the third speech of the, yeah, right. the platform, okay? <laughs> and, um, I, I mean, <coughs> do you want to respond to this gentleman's Social cohesion? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I haven't got a lot to say about it, really. Um, Oops. It's one of the things... That, excuse me. We could have a real accident here. It's one of the things that they try to bring up in the spirit level. Um, trust, actually. They, they use the World Value Survey quite a lot, which is a very interesting survey, all sorts of things around the world. And they, they claim that trust was lower in less equal societies. Um, it isn't, really. <laughs> if you if you actually look at all the countries, uh, and if you look at other measures of social cohesion, who's members of social clubs and things like this, uh, if anything, that the the correlation goes the other way. So it's um, you know the, it goes back to what I said right at the beginning. You know when people talk about inequality, they actually talk about different things. One of the things people are talking about is class, and um, 
There are classes. There always have been classes. And so there are people who, you know, not very far from here, will be going off to the Ritz while other people are having beans on toast. You know, there, are, there, there is inequality. And I, maybe I could be wrong, but I don't think anyone here is actually an egalitarian in the sense they think everyone should have the same, regardless of how much work they do or what they do or what their merits are. Um, so the, uh, the whole issue of equality as commonly conceived today is actually just about, well, it should be a little bit lower. It should be a little bit lower. Well, well, it's gone down already quite a bit. Oh, and it should be a bit lower still. We should be like Sweden, or we should be like Finland, or we should be... Why? why? There's, there's no kind of empirical um, evidence showing that there's a particular sweet spot of inequality. It just doesn't seem to be um, to matter at all. It's just something for people to complain about. Thank you, Bert. I mean, if you were to take your economist hat off, What about this argument about social cohesion, that in a more equal society is likely to be happier because it's cohesive, and a unequal society is dysfunctional and social cohesion breaks down? Um, I'm, I'm not sure about the breaking down, but otherwise I would think that I subscribe to the, to the cohesion view. I mean, unequal societies have been around for extended periods in history, so they certainly don't, uh, don't break down. Um, uh, but no, I, I certainly, I mean, there, there's a certain polarization going on in, in terms of uh, what it means to be an egalitarian and whether I would want to have everyone with the same income. Uh, I guess my gut feeling is that I don't quite see why people should have more than 10 times the medium income or something like that. People clearly tend to think of themselves in, in relative terms and compare themselves to, uh, to other people. In academia, we tend to compare ourselves with various league tables in terms of publications and where universities are and so on. But that is, uh, I mean, how social realities work. People look at where they are in some social pecking order. So in that sense, I do think that inequality matters. And I don't see uh, the social value in having that pecking order spread out over large income levels, because you get all sorts of side effects uh, with that. Therefore, I, I don't mind sort of a certain degree of social stratification. I just don't see why it has to be particularly big. I am concerned about diverging income trends. Uh, and certainly my reading of the evidence is that in the course of the last two, three decades, we have seen a divergence of income. Uh, and in particular, we have seen the emergence, uh, while with some differences across countries, where sort of we had an income distribution essentially between a working class and whatever you call the upper classes, but quite sizable groups of the population, towards one where it's the very top of the income distribution and that's the talk of the 1%. And that 1% is really having a very different experience in their development of incomes from the rest of society. And yes, that to me is an issue of social cohesion that I'm worried about. Okay, right, anyone else? Um, was there someone over here? Oh, yes, in the back. I just don't actually ask. One first. Yeah, it's a, it's a way to keep you fit. 
So I wasn't sure if I could sit back here uh, with my hand up. Um, I just want to make a few uh, historical comments. Um, <coughs> when um, uh, Margaret Thatcher was elected at the end of the 1970s, um, the United Kingdom, income-wise, was the most equal in the whole of Europe. Um, the uh, Wilson government of the 70s introduced, um, oh, it was, a, it was a social policy, uh, which radically, um, I can't remember what it was, social contract, which radically narrowed the incomes between the lowest and the very highest paid. Um, it also um, narrowed the income differentials radically between men and women. And it, um, it, it also, um, it, it just created um, a great deal more e e economic um, um, uh, generation. The UK was called the sick man of Europe. I don't accept that the economy was in the chaos that uh, people say it was. So the, what, what's your point? Uh, I, I, I want to make general points because um, I, I, um, I, I'm taking the point that uh, the, uh, reducing in inequality in income actually uh, stimulated and not uh, retarded growth. The retardation of growth started when um, the Labour government uh, shifted to the right and they went to the International Monetary Fund who imposed austerity measures which started to um, reverse the reduction of income inequality. Um, and then with Thatcher in the 80s, they, this, uh, Keith Joseph and Geoffrey House crashed the economy and transferred it, transformed it from a highly paid, highly skilled uh, manufacturing sector. Well, well, without going through all the history. Uh, yeah, but I, I'm <laughs> just trying... Because it could go on for a long time. Yeah, but do, you, do you want to make your, you know, your focus point, what you're trying to get out my, of my, all right. my focus point, for instance, um, uh, we started to reverse the uh, decline from 2008, and it was the attacks on benefits and wages by the newly elected coalition government that choked off the recovery. I don't actually believe we're in, in recovery at the moment, and the reduction in unemployment is artificial, hence um, the benefits benefits uh, are, are continuing to rise okay. because people's income levels have actually been radically reduced. Okay, so... It's, it's a complex issue. Okay, so back. there was a golden pass that somehow came to an end in 2008. But let, let's have a... Let, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, anyone else? Uh, the, the person who has the microphone, you see, has control. Go okay. On. Yeah, I, I have um, a couple of sort of related points and one question. And that is, um, <clears throat> there seems to be a bit of confusion. When Chris was talking about poverty and relative poverty, um, I see a problem with this idea of, 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 of how, or what wealth is and how we measure it. Um, Chris was talking about how living standards rise and a country becomes wealthier, which I accept. So on the one hand, you have living standards, and China is seeing that now, where they're becoming richer, more people have washing machines and cars. On the other hand, you have purchasing power which I haven't heard any mention about, which is basically a division of wealth. Um, you know, wealth may, technology and, and, and living standards may improve over time, 
but we have one planet, we have one society, we have one city of London where people are trying to buy houses in London and they can't because you know the prices of property is going up and most people don't have enough money and that's because of inequality. And secondly, okay. the related point to that, which I haven't heard any talk about, is the effect on democracy. Because if people have less purchasing power, they have less power in society. And even if it's just the 1% that's getting richer and richer, it's that 1% that control governments and win elections. And there's a real risk to democracy when you have an equal society, as I would say. OK, let's start with Chris on that. I mean, the, the, Oh, yes, you do want the microphone. Sorry. Um, I, mean, I mean, the first point is about the, the distribution of wealth. I mean, mm. that if you distribute wealth more fairly, you actually get more consumption. If the 1% is not likely to spend, you distribute it, it's spent, and the economy grows. And then the whole question about democracy, that if you create a rich elite, you create an elite-based society with power levers into the decision-makers. I think you're putting those questions rather better than the questioners did, if that's what they meant. But, um, <laughs> uh, well, okay, the, um, I think I'm quoting you correctly, last gentleman said, people don't have enough money in London, and that's because of inequality. And this is, this is uh, um, following your, your point about housing. I just don't see it. People don't have enough money because of inequality. Possibly there is inequality because people don't have enough money, but the other way around, I, I, I don't get it. You're saying that if the rich had less money, people would have enough. That seems to be the only logical corollary of what you're saying. And I see that's the whole problem with the, the inequality agenda. Is it's inserted into areas where it has no business being. You're talking there about poverty and about house prices. Now, they're, they're both issues for which there are solutions. And they're more complex than merely taxing the rich or exporting the rich, but there are solutions to them, and they're important issues, and they're the kind of things we should be focusing on. But to say that people are poor because of inequality makes no sense to me at all. And the point in the back about the 1970s, which you, you, you didn't mention it, I mean, well, I won't go on at such length, but I mean, I don't think it actually is true that we were the most equal country in, in Europe. We were certainly more equal than we are now. But on the other hand, the economy was on its knees. Uh, we were most equal in recorded history, and Gini coefficient is only reliably recorded back to the 60s, really. Um, we were most equal around about 1975, when living standards were plummeting, inflation was 25%, wages, um, were, yeah, everything was awful. Nobody surely wants to go back to the 1970s. Uh, as I said in my opening remarks, real incomes, real incomes, and that obviously includes purchasing power, okay. have doubled since, the, since 1977, to be precise. Um, let's come to the democracy question in a minute. What about this? I mean, I, I, what I thought Martin was saying is that we, had no, we hadn't dealt with the whole issue of purchasing power, and that you, when you have inequality, you have less aggregate purchasing power, and that's bad for the economy. Uh, that, that is roughly in line with the studies that I've cited earlier. Uh, the, the empirical evidence seems to suggest that uh, countries that have a higher degree of equality uh, grow faster afterwards. Uh, does, does it make sense to say that uh, if one takes away from the, from the rich the poor bet of, 
Uh, I mean, we know that on average countries tend to grow every year by 2% or so over longer periods. So, yes, I mean, if, if the rich are getting richer and the economy is not changing its growth path a whole lot, someone else has to be losing out. I mean, there, there obviously always is a growing the pie element in economic growth, but there's also the, the issue of the distribution of the pie. Uh, so I certainly can't separate the, the issue of um, uh, of poverty uh, from the issue of inequality. But let me get back to, to the issue of the growth model. Uh, I mean, the, the, what we have experienced since roughly the 1980s is a growth model that is heavily relied on debt growth, in particular on household debt growth which historically is a relatively new phenomenon. If, if, when we teach introductory economics and the circular flow of the macroeconomy, it's households that are saving and are the surplus units and it's firms that are needing the loans because they are the units that are investing. That is emphatically not what has happened in the major economies uh, in, in the last 30 years. We have a massive shift towards uh, banks lending to households and firms are investing less and less relative to their profits. So the, the, the growth model that we're in is one that very heavily relies uh, on growth of debt and therefore all sorts of financial bubbles and is thus an intrinsically unstable one and that is what we, what we have experienced uh, in 2008. Curiously, Britain is different from a lot of other of the lot of the other debt-driven growth models in that in Britain actually real estate prices didn't come down a whole lot. I mean if you compare it to the US, where real estate prices have come down roughly by a third, if you compare it to Spain or Ireland, where growth, uh, real estate prices have come down a lot more, uh, the, the, there still is a property bubble in Great Britain. And so I do, from that perspective, I'm still very worried about the, the condition of the economy. And if you look at the, at the forecasts, or at the analysis of the Office of Budget Responsibility, which the, the, the job of which is to, to check the plausibility and the macroeconomic consequences of uh, government policies, uh, what you have there is that over the next uh, uh, five to ten years, uh, it forecasts an increase in household debt that is as big as the one that we had uh, to the, in the run-up of the financial crisis in the decade uh, before 2008. So I, what I'm concerned is uh, not only that it leads to uh, to lower growth and, and uh, that rising inequality leads to lower growth and a uh, less social cohesion, but also that it's sort of uh, part of an economic growth model that's highly fragile, that relies on credit growth as the engine of economic growth and thus is likely to produce severe crisis. And do you want to briefly just deal with that other point, that there is an ethical issue about inequality because if you create a wealthy elite, it has more political power. Oops. Yes, this is one of the did kind say, of things that could get me. Yes? <laughs> I, I said yes, I will answer the question. Um, it's the kind of thing that would make me concerned about inequality. And also the work Engelberg has done um, both on growth and inequality and 
inequalities are potential cause of the crash. The kind of things that would get me concerned about it. I don't, I have read his stuff, it's very good, but I, actually, I, I, it's, I don't find it convincing. Um, nor do I find it convincing the idea that having greater inequality leads to some kind of corruption in the political process. I think possibly the other way around um, is more likely. Um, I just think that, <coughs> although it's certainly true, <coughs> excuse me, although it is true up to a point that money can buy uh, power in a democracy, it doesn't seem obvious to me that the extremes getting becoming more extreme make a great deal of difference. I mean, it doesn't seem obvious to me that having someone like Donald Trump in charge uh, is something that J.D. Rockefeller couldn't have done in the 1930s, for example. I mean, you have people, you will, except, accepting that you will always have multi-millionaires, um, it doesn't seem to me that it makes any difference if you have a few more multi-billionaires in terms of the political process. Um, and also, you know, if you actually look, I, mean, I, I fully expect Trump to lose the uh, presidential election. And actually, if you look at the attempts of people to buy <coughs> elections over the years, they've, they've nearly all been colossal failures, Ralph Nader and, and, and so on. Um, so I'm not convinced that money actually does buy that much in politics at that level. At the lobbying level, I'm sure it buys a bit more. But my point is, I suppose, that once you are very rich, I don't think it makes any difference to political level if you have some people who are very, very rich. Okay, okay Harsha over here, and then Ed. Hi. Uh, sorry, this is this is for Chris. Um, uh, Chris, you said that you don't care about poverty. Um, uh, inequality. In, sorry, uh, about inequality. Uh, so this is but, that you confused, care, but that you care about poverty. My question is about poverty. Um, so what should we do about poverty? Okay, that's that question. <laughs> and Ed, how many questions do you have? Now, Ed here, in the front. Uh, thank you. Um, so, Sonkheimer, uh, human progress uh, comes about through aspiration and effort leading to reward. If we limit the reward, it rather strikes me that we're going to uh, limit the ability to move forward as a society as a whole. And we have good examples of this. As you rightly said, different countries have different economic models. And wherever we've tried to impose uh, at some degree of, uh, of evenness or fairness, if one puts it in that way, I'd say it's deeply unfair on the people who are affected by it. Uh, we see that things don't play out well. Uh, Cuba and Venezuela come to mind, for example. Uh, I read the other week that Cuba had an average uh, dollar income per head of $136, for example. Uh, Venezuela is in a dreadful state at the moment, having pursued socialism to an extreme degree. Um, the, uh, a couple of other points, if I uh, could make them just broadly and generally. The property ladder vexes everybody in and around London, largely because many people are younger than me. In fact, most people are younger than me, actually. Uh, and don't recall that property can be uh, a two-way bet, not a one-way bet, that amongst the many properties I've owned in, uh, over the years, I can recall buying one in London for 112000 in uh, about 1988 and selling it for 108000 five years later, which in a period of fairly high inflation meant I lost about 30% of the effective value of it. So do not think that property can't deliver, uh, uh, operate in bubbles and may not be doing so at the moment. Can, can demand comes into it, I have to say. Can we hold it there? Because I know there's someone, a couple other people who want to ask Indeed. questions. Indeed, thank you. Coming to the end. Before we 
let's deal with those two questions, and I'll come to you. Could you deal <coughs> with Ed's point, uh, the first point, which is an ethical question? If you don't have rewards, you don't have people who are going to prosper and achieve. Um, and therefore, it is ethical to have inequality in order for rewards to be effective. Yeah, I, I'm an economist, so I'm not against incentive and reward. The, the issue is uh, how much of a reward you, are, you want. Uh, and it's also clear to me that... Yes, you want to limit it. Okay. Well, yes. Exactly. That's the key difference. I mean, the, the issue is not on whether we want rewards. Yes, we want rewards. The question is whether it makes sense to limit them, and whether what the evidence is uh, that uh, either via taxes or other means, limiting it has has negative effects. My reading of the evidence is no. If if you do it within the bounds of reason. Uh, it doesn't have huge effects. Uh, I'm from Austria, where we had, compared to a lot of other countries, uh, relatively uh, egalitarian income distribution, and overall our growth performance was not worse than other countries in, in Europe. By many uh, measures, it, it was better. So I, I don't see that, uh, that by itself it, uh, it would hurt that much. The other big question is to what extent the inequality that we are seeing today, in particular at the very top, the, the top 1%, uh, does reflect uh, effort or achievement. I would be very doubtful about that. Uh, and certainly if you look at management remuneration, there's extremely weak correlation between firm performance and management pay. Uh, and certainly, if you look at management payout since the crisis, uh, the, there's a clear disconnect between the two. So uh, the, the, the point is, a lot of the inequality or the increase in inequality that we have, that we have seen over the last decades just doesn't have a whole lot to do with, uh, uh, with the effort or with the performance of people. Okay, and the question, you, you don't care much about inequality, but you do poverty, what would you do about poverty? Well, that's a whole other debate, isn't it? I mean, the, the IEO published all sorts of things about po poverty. There's an excellent book called New Understanding of Poverty. I mean, oh, massive deregulation, cutting indirect taxes in particular, VAT in particular should be cut. Housing is a huge issue. Uh, we need to build a hell of a lot more houses. There's all sorts of things, things to do. And, you know, I, I think, I wish that we could have debates and events about what we're going to do about poverty rather than what we're going to do about inequality because they are, they are totally different things. And I think a lot of people who uh, come along to these things and you, know, you even slips up a Freudian slip in your question, confusing the two things, they are not the same thing. You know, we might have different um, suggestions about what to do about poverty. Let's talk about that. Let's not talk just about inequality because inequality is very easy to solve by just levelling down. And we don't want to do that. We need to, if we're going to level at all, we need to level up. Okay. Gentlemen at the back, let's make this the last question and then we'll sum up and then people um, can meet each other and network afterwards. Gentlemen at the back. Um, yes. I, uh, Engelbert's made some comments about... Um, the growth model, and he's very worried about um, the debt burden on private households uh, leading to instability in the economy. Uh, two, two questions arising out of that. Would Chris like to comment on that? Is he worried about the rising debt levels of private households? And does Engelbert have any, what would Engelbert's solution to that be? Okay. Are you worried about it? Um, 
Again, it sort of depends why, why it's being caused. I mean, I, I think some of what Engelberg has written in the past, which she hasn't really got onto tonight, um, about the, the financial crash and, and so on, and risky assets. You know, th these risky assets were held amongst people on low incomes, right? It was subprime. This was a subprime problem. Um, so you're lending money to people who you know, had very little chance of paying it back in reality. And for all the complications and the, the, the weird financial instruments in the, in the financial crisis, ultimately I think it actually came down to a good old-fashioned bubble, and not dissimilar to the South Sea bubble or the Dutch tulip bubble. Or something. It was a bubble in which people thought that property prices would never fall. That was the fundamental conceit, that property prices would never fall, therefore you can lend money to people for mortgages and it doesn't matter if they don't pay you back because you just take the house. Um, so a lot of the, what, what we talk about as debt is not actually credit card debt, it's, it's mortgage debt. And again, in this country, it comes down to housing. There are, so, there are really not that many problems you can look at in this country which don't ultimately come down to housing. Um, it really is a serious issue. And the, so what, you have, it's a supply-demand issue. Either you reduce the number of people in the country or you increase a, the housing stock. Personally, I'd rather increase the housing stock. But I mean, those, I think, are the kind of issues we need to be uh, looking at. Okay. <laughs> and how would you address it? Um... It's a tricky one because, in my reading, we have a big housing bubble presently in the UK. And uh, now, while in principle you would want to prick a bubble, if it's fully blown, that's a bit dangerous. Um, what in principle would one do? Well, in principle, you would expect uh, the, the Monetary Authority, the Bank of England, to lean more aggressively against bubble. It hasn't done that, but uh, it sort of followed the, the philosophy that the market knows best and uh, the, 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 the rise in property prices will be somehow justified by fundamentals. If you have the bubble, what do you do? The effect, I guess two comments on that. On the one hand, uh, what you want to do in this situation is really you want to have high inflation. <laughs> because the other way that you get rid of it is by bringing down property prices, and that's painful. That will create a problem for a lot of people, including for banks. Uh, but you have to, to reduce the real debt burden. Thus, the other way to reduce the real debt burden is to increase incomes. Therefore, in the present situation, both for Europe and for the UK, I would think we actually want substantially higher inflation than we presently have until we, we get the, 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 the debt levels down. The second point is, I mean, I'm exaggerated a bit for the, for the, for the UK. What I say applies actually a bit more uh, to, to the US. I mean, we, we have been in a situation where to some extent consumption expenditure uh, were financed out of, uh, out of credit rather than out of current income. If you need consumption growth, and one way or another we need and we want consumption growth, and you don't want it to be financed by credit, essentially what you need is rising wages, because I mean that's the main income sources for most households. Therefore, what we need is income growth, and in particular wage growth, because that way people can uh, can increase spending without running into debt. So in that sense, wage growth and uh, building houses such that you bring down 
property prices. Okay, well, we've come to pretty well the end now where we're just going to conclude. Let me ask you a question just to sum up. I mean, do you think that, I mean, starting with you, Chris, do you think inequality is an ethical issue or it raises a number of subsidiary concerns that are ethics, are ethical considerations? Or do you think inequality and ethics really don't fit together at all? I don't think they fit together at all. I don't think... Um, I think it would be impossible to say that there is a particular statistical measure of inequality which is the most ethical. And if you can't do that, I, I, I can't see how you can, you can say it's an ethical question. It, it, it depends entirely on the causes of it. It's, it. As I said to start with, it's a symptom. It might be a symptom of something good, might be a symptom of something bad, might be a symptom of something totally benign and irrelevant. It's telling you something in the same way that, you know, heat is telling you something. But you could be warm because you're, it's the middle of July and you're out sunbathing, or you could be warm because your house is burning down. But the, it, it's what's causing it that's the issue. You can't tell by merely looking at the, the statistic um, whether it's too high or too low. It depends on... Uh, on, on what's causing it. I don't think, I mean, if you look internationally, um, income inequality in Britain is low, if anything, by global standards. It's averaged by European standards. Um, in, uh, historically, hard to say, but certainly over the course of the last um, 30 years, as I say, it's low. It did obviously rise in the 1980s, but there's no reason to think that it was at the, exactly the right point in 1979 when the economy was on its knees. I just don't see it as being uh, relevant. It's not important at all. Um, the death of Prince is important. Go back, listen to Silent Times. Okay. And, you know, again, taking your economics hat off and pretending you're Adam Smith and realising that economics is about politics as well. Um, is equality uh, an ethical issue? Well, from my point of view, it clearly is. But I guess the, the analytical point is, to me, it does not make sense to separate the discussion of poverty and of inequality. The evidence is very clear that they're highly correlated. Uh, also, I don't think we can seriously discuss inequality uh, without its implication on intergenerational mobility. Social mobility does depend on inequality. Again, I think the empirical evidence is very firm there. So, yes, I do think it's an ethical issue. Okay, thank you. Okay, well, that is the end of the evening. So, thank you all for coming. Thank you, Chris, and thank you, Engelbert, for, for coming here. And It was a much more in-depth discussion than we normally have because it, it is quite complex uh, issue in many, many ways. So thank you for coming. And I apologise to those who came early because we got the <laughs> timings mixed up on two different sites. But thank you all and thank you all for your contribution and for your questions as well. Thank you. <coughs> thank you very much, Will Chad. It's good to see you again.